1: Center, it sounds very huge and elevated. And that's what it feels like, like once
2: you're working there. Because Rent is about much more than just friendship, love, and musical theater. It was about something that shook like musical theater. People are becoming
1: more and more comfortable with, you know, of people different.
0: I mean, we
3: do it all. I mean, you know, we don't, we don't back away from anything.
0: Welcome to Broadway Bullet. This is volume 220 for October 9th, 2008. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and uh, back to some regular coverage after a long period of festival madness going on and those great IT awards, that special episode last Last time. We've got a lot of great stuff for you this week. We have got the new production from the gallery players of Like You Like It with an exclusive in studio live performance from the show. We're also getting up close with Michael John Lacusa. Uh, Yeah, we got a great in-depth interview, and we're going to hear some music that he's done as well, so you want to check that out. We're also going to hear from Melinda Atwood, who heads up the very successful uh, development uh, workshop for choreographers, Dance Break. We're going to hear a song from the Prospect Theater's new production of Illyria. We've got Michael Jurgen, Tony, winning set designer of South Pacific. He was on earlier, but we got a little bit more information where he offers a lot of advice to uh, upcoming designers, and of course, Marty Cooper is here with on the positive side, as well as news and all sorts of stuff. So, uh, if you're joining us for the first time, remember that the enhanced podcast at iTunes uh, lets you skip between chapters. You can just uh, hit, you know, next or back, and it'll take you to, you know, so you can listen to your favorite part again. Without having to sift through tons of materials. So, definitely urge you to subscribe through iTunes and the enhanced version if you aren't already. On that note, let's jump into the program because we got a full episode.
1: On the boards.
0: Well, this next interview, I get a couple favorites combined. Gallery Players have been on a few times, and in fact, last time they were on for uh, Yank, their show won for uh, Best Musical at the NYIT Awards. And Gallery Players are back with a presentation of Like You Like It, which was also from originating from another favorite, the New York Musical Theater Festival, in the first year. And here with us today we have Sammy Buck, Daniel Aquisto, and Igor Golden here. I'll let them introduce themselves so you can connect the voice with the uh, name.
4: Hey there, I'm Sammy. And what do you do? I'm the book writer and the lyricist of Like You Like It. And I'm Dan,
2: and I have
5: written all the music for this show. And I'm Igor, and I'm the director. All right, so
0: first things first, uh, before we also are gonna have a great performance here a little bit later on in the from the show. But what is Like You Like It about?
4: Well, like you like it is uh, Shakespeare's As You Like It, set in the mall in the 1980s. Uh, but it's also a real uh, throwback to the uh, old John Hughes movies of of the 1980s that we grew up with. It's uh, I, I kind of call it the the Shakespeare chocolate gotten to the John Hughes peanut butter, and we have you know this Rhesus of a musical. Uh, and ultimately, though, it's really the heart of it is about the risks we all take for love, and you know how far. Anyone goes for you know their first crush, their first love,
0: and the risks you know that we take. You know what's great about Shakespeare adaptations is nobody has to blink or explain any further when you say <laughs> it. Shakespeare's like you like it set in the mall in the eighties. <laughs> You'd be surprised though. <laughs> so, what was the inspiration behind even coming up with the this show? This has been around a little while. It was in the first year of the musical theater festival, and
4: yeah, well. Um, Uh, We wanted to write uh, a comedy and something that was kind of, uh, had a lot of characters and a lot of intertwining storylines and something that would be just a heck of a lot of fun and something that would be really fun for the cast to play. And, uh, well, Dan, you want to talk a little bit about, you know, your musical, uh, you know, inspiration?
2: Oh, well, you know, when Sammy approached, well, first of all, Sammy was looking for a partner we met in the BMI workshop. And... um, Basically, when he mentioned 80s musical, I got very excited because this was the music that I grew up listening to. So I got a chance to actually write it, and it would be relevant as opposed to just writing 80s music that nobody would ever hear. So uh, I actually got a lot of inspiration just from uh, going to the record store and buying um, CDs with compilations. The record store? What is it?
0: (laughs) Do we have any of those left in New York?
2: (laughs) (laughs) There was once one. Recently, right? Uh, so we, uh, so I just had a little ball just listening to old songs and and B-sides of albums that you just never expected. It was like listening to music for the first time, and uh, a lot of that was just the inspiration for it, and I had a great time just writing it that way. But then at the same time, we had to still keep it theatrical and, and serve the, the story, and I, I hope I was able to, to do that. I think I did.
4: Yeah, what's really cool, I think, about the work you've done is that it's... Uh it's kind of like, I, I always describe it uh, to people as like, it's the B side of, oh, God, that's dating us, the 45s and the B side. But <laughs> it's like, it would be like the B side of, you know, Tony Basil's Oh, Mickey, You're So Fine. Like, this song We've would got kind of tons of, of like 16
0: year olds going, B side? I know.
6: What's the B side? <laughs> what is that?
4: <laughs> Kids, it was a little bit bigger than a CD. A bonus track, <laughs> they
6: call them now. Oh, there little you little go. <laughs> <laughs> also oh,
2: starts with a B. Gosh. <laughs> that's right, gosh. So what what I was doing was uh, the goal was to to sort of uh, tap at the back of the the listener's psyche. Like, I've heard I've heard this song, haven't I? No, I haven't. It's brand new. So it was. It's it's basically what you're saying. It's sort of an amalgamation. Some songs took various elements of different '80s music and then just piled it all together and uh, and created something new.
0: Well, now while this is, we'll get to the new New York production here in a second. But I understand between uh, its incarnation at the New York Musical Theater Festival and. Now that there's been a fair amount of action in a lot of other places with this show,
4: oh yeah, yeah. it was great. We went to uh, Cardiff, Wales, for the uh, International Musical Theatre Festival there, and we had an, this amazing cast that was cast out of the Royal Scottish Academy, and it was a really neat intersection of, you know, this conservatory doing you know doing our show. It was it was almost like the the bonding that happens in a show is almost. Prefabbed, you know for there and we had a a production last summer that Igor directed at Theater Under the Stars that was a collaboration with Sam Houston State University so once again it was great to have uh, a university cast do it and uh, we've had a couple uh, workshops here and there and uh, it was it's been a great way to work on the show because it certainly needed a lot of work since Nymph and uh, we're uh, pretty uh, happy with it.
2: Yeah I think we're satisfied with with how it's developed since then it's, it's its become a newer show I think it's become a stronger s- story and, and yeah. I think it's more engaging
4: yeah it kind of became bigger yet more intimate and you know funny yet more kind of gravitas ish and um yeah that's a lot you know thanks to igor and the work we did last
0: gravitasi-ish. summer gravitasi-ish we gotta like create a new yeah. addiction it's like truthiness <laughs> <laughs> so igor they mentioned that you were involved last year how long have you now been with the show as a director
5: uh i came on board uh last summer for the for the uh, sam houston state university and theater under the stars production uh in houston um I'm just trying to think. I I came on board primarily because Sammy and I had met uh, w- with a, a Nymph New York Musical Theater Festival commissioned project, dance project called Common Grounds that he wrote the book for and I directed uh, and our relationship grew there and I had known Dan for I'm not even going to say how many years but we <laughs> okay. did Summer Stock together in another millennium <laughs> and um, and met there and then of course those two had been writing already and it just kind of all worked together and fit beautifully. And he asked if uh, I wanted to go down to Houston to do this, and I said, "Yeah, that would be great." And it was—it was good. It was good to see it on its feet. It was good to see uh, what the machine is. It's—it's it's, what really appealed to to me about the show, and continues to impress me as we move forward with it. Is the craft, honestly, how beautifully integrated it is. It knows what it wants to be. It's. Fiercely clever and funny, and then on a on a dime becomes so surprisingly moving, and um, it just resonated with me in, in a wonderful way. And I think with all those high school musicals out there right now, uh, this one has has craft and that exists. High School Musical Two wasn't like a master. Well, I don't want to, and I don't want to dog them. <laughs> I, I don't want to dog them. I I actually really like High School Musical Two.
0: Um, you like? Did you you added the two? You like? I, one I thought was good. Two I thought was a steaming pile of crap. Um, well, I think <laughs> the out. reason
5: why I like Two so much is because it doesn't try not to be a steaming pile of crap. It just is what it is, and it's having a good time being it, and just giving me a good dance number. Yeah, and I, I'm a happy kid. Yeah, and
4: I will vouch that my nine year old nephew does that whole we gotta work it out uh, number from the kitchen he's kind of all kinds of brilliant I want him to grow up and uh, play uh, a role you know like when his high school does like you like it you know He'll, he'll probably play Touchdown,
0: I think. Oh, yeah? Yeah. You're, you're possibly the second dad in history to ever say, when my son grows up, I want him to play this role. Matthew, Matthew. Matthew. So, um, on to the production now here with Gallery Players. Um, well, before we talk a little bit about this, we've got two of the lead actors here with you to perform a number from the show live here in the studio. Do you, want, you guys want to do that? Ready for that? Uh, sure. Yeah. Great. You want to introduce everybody here that's performing?
4: Absolutely. Uh, we have Nathan Johnson playing Orlando, our uh, uh, lead leading man, and we have uh, Allison Luff playing Rosalind, our leading lady. Uh, the gist of these two characters that's. Uh, in the show is that they're high school seniors who have had a crush on each other pretty much since their freshman year, but they've never talked to each other for, like, all of high school. And here they are, face to face for the very first time, and this is the song they sing. They're going to say their silly little um, conversation, and they'll be singing their inner thoughts.
0: Alright, so Dan, hop on the piano, and uh, let's hear what happens. All right. You're, You're Roslyn.
1: How, How did you... you... I saw you, and <laughs> we have chemistry together.
7: Holy crap, he's talking to me.
1: I mean, fourth period, Miss Johnson.
7: Holy crap, he's still talking to me.
1: You're sitting near the Bunsen burners.
7: Maybe he might think that I'm not a freak, because he's standing in front of me. Whoa. It could totally
1: Holy crap, she's talking to me.
7: It has an eraser and lead in it.
1: (laughs) And for once, I'm not running away.
7: I think
8: it's a number two.
1: Even if I screw it up when I speak, I'll be standing in front of her. Whoa, it could totally happen. I've waited long enough to try something Act really smart, that could totally happen It's the moment I've been hoping for Don't blow it, just go with it Say I've seen you at my wrestling matches
7: Yeah, I like the way you pin
1: we should get to class. <laughs> oh, while we, we think alike. alike Hello, it's destiny, destiny. We're meant to be together. be together I'll take her to the dance tonight We're getting married after college I'm gonna walk her home We'll buy a house on a cul de And maybe a chance We'll
8: have two kids or
1: maybe a kiss Rebecca and Jack I can see it's in the halls at school And
7: I can see it's growing old and Holding hands,
8: holding
1: hands. It could totally happen Can't wait a minute more to say Totally.
0: Now, if I'm not mistaken, this is
5: the second original musical gallery Players has put on, right? That is correct. Yeah. Actually, last year we did Yank. I directed Yank. I've been with that Mm -hmm. show for quite a while now. And... um uh, at the time, Matt Schicker was the artistic director of the gallery, and he saw uh, our production at Nymph several years ago, and then uh, kind of out of the blue, just contacted the writers and said, hey, listen, we're thinking of doing original shows at the gallery now, and would you guys be interested in, in doing Yank? And we thought, well, why not? Let's just take a chance and do it. And it worked so well for the gallery and for us that that we started talking, and then we and then, um, Heather uh, Curran, who's now the artistic director, and I started talking, and I said, you know, there's this show out there, because they wanted another new musical, because Yank went so well, but something that that was very different from Yank. And uh, I said, you know, like you like, it's a great show. I just did it. It's so different from Yank in every way, but it has everything that you guys are looking for in a musical, and it also has a nice word of mouth and a lore because of the festival and we went in with that with Yank as well and they read it, loved it and um and it was pretty pretty easy. Pretty easy to, to get in the next season and so here we are.
0: And you, well, uh, as we're interviewing, you open now in what, like two weeks? Uh, Yeah, two... uh, two, A week from this Saturday. Two two days less than two weeks, yes. (laughs) October 18th. October
5: 18th through November 2nd. So how's the process been going? Anything different or surprising? Fantastic. No, you know, what's really wonderful is you know, it's all in the casting, and the more I direct, the more I realize that it really is. I'd love to say that it's all about me, but it's 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 just not. You have a if you have a really tight show, and this show is the 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 script, the music, the lyrics—they're integrated beautifully. They coexist very well. They support one another, um, and then you have a, a group of performers that are so jazzed and so talented and so appropriately cast that um, it, it's it's really kind of a magical. A magical experience for all of us at this point and you can't say that about every production but this one really is one of those rare shows where i'm just so excited to see it on its feet in front of an audience now because we're having such a good time And I think one notable thing about the Gallery Players, as they've
0: been building up a lot of attention in, you know, Acclaim the past uh, year or two, is uh, they're based in Brooklyn. You know, Mm -hmm. they're one of the few theater companies getting a lot of attention that isn't right here in the the middle of the city. How is, does it feel different going out, working out in Brooklyn? Is it a little bit away from the...
5: uh, Well, the (laughs) great thing about it, and the one thing I'll say, and then I'll pass it on to them, is that everyone who does a show in Brooklyn is doing it because they really want to do the show. And, and that's a really good, good thing. You know, there are people that would go out and audition and go, oh, this is really not for me. I don't know if I want the commute, which, frankly, really isn't that bad. Um, and they, they, they end up not not coming to a callback or, or being Well, interested. the commute,
0: it's a different thing if you're coming from Manhattan, but sometimes, you know, going from the Bronx or
5: the Queens right, right or Bronx. Yeah, we have cast members that, <laughs> that live way up in Inwood and in the Bronx. Yeah. And, you know, it ends up for them being uh, a lovely social event getting on the train at the end of rehearsal and and on mass going to the three different boroughs that they're headed toward or the two different boroughs well there's the bronx and queens and manhattan, manhattan. manhattan. yeah so so to take you know any scare away from any potential audience members how easy is it to get to the gallery players. It's really easy. It's really easy. And honestly, there are times where it, it takes me no time at all, and it depends whatever train you're closest to. The F train goes right there. The M, R, the R, R train. train goes right there. Even um, the M train goes right mm. there. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So it's it's really not <laughs> difficult at all. I can understand why it would be daunting for people who have never taken the trip, but once you do it once, you realize, oh, it's just like going anywhere else within Manhattan.
2: I, I personally know. like the trip myself. Yeah, he can walk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for, for once, I don't have to go to Manhattan to work Or see a show, they get to come out to me. It's it's nice.
0: (laughs) All right, well, any parting shots you want to get out here on Like You Like It?
4: Well, we definitely want to let you know how to get tickets. Yeah. Uh. (laughs) Well, I was going to do that at the end. Okay. (laughs) I'm a shameless plugger. Yeah. 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 He's good at that. I have a blog. Um,. Uh, And we have a website. (laughs) Oh, we do have our website, likeyoulikeit.com, but you can also go to galleryplayers.com. You can call 212-352-3101 and uh, get your tickets. They're uh, selling very well, which is always really exciting uh, for us. We've just been really, really pleased with the way the show connects with audiences really of all ages. and
5: you know. That, that's an important thing to say because, you know, we keep talking about High School Musical and stuff but I, I I can't stress enough that this show plays on so many different levels and and we've seen it play to an exclusively adult audience where they never stop laughing the entire evening. Yeah. So well, you have people... adults the John
0: Hughes movies.
5: Well, that's well, <laughs> right. So these people are the ones that have children now, right? right? So yeah, but,
4: but not just that. What's interesting, we had a reading um, and the audience probably averaged over probably over 50, actually. And what was amazing to me is that they, may, you know, they might have got some of the references. And, and really, the show was not written for just references. It was written to have a heart. And they were laughing at all the stuff that was real with the characters and the character foibles and the situations they were in and the situations that they went, yeah, you know what? I didn't have that experience at 16. I had that experience last week. You know, it's, just, it's very universal because we're all... We all have relationships.
2: <laughs> and on the flip side of that, I remember when I played, uh, I, I subbed for the drummer once on, on one of our Nymph shows and I got a clear view of the audience and there was a group of maybe like 12 Teeny boppers, you know, you know, tweens, I guess, right? <laughs> and um, I just was looking, and they were so enjoying it. So we got to see that we have people over fifty enjoying it, people in our demographic who grew up in the eighties, and then these uh, the younger kids. And I think it's I think it is universally appealing. Yeah,
5: our cast is you know in the early twenties, mid to, to late twenties. I don't think anyone's over that and and they love it and of course it's really sweet i guess it's sweet just to, to see that many references at first they didn't understand because it was <laughs> yes. way before their time and yet somehow the, it just resonates with them beautifully so
0: all right so and they got uh to from the 18th of october to the 2nd of november to catch That's this correct right so, yeah, don't delay. Is that two weekends or three weekends? How does that Three, th- three <laughs> weekends. Weekend, three weekends,
5: yeah. A lot yeah. of singing, a lot of dancing. It's, fa- it's fantastic.
0: All right, well, Sammy Buck, Igor Golden, and Dan Aquisto. Aquis, the Aquisto. Aquisto. Aquisto.
4: <laughs> Together, Buck and Aquisto makes Buckwisto. Yes. <laughs>
5: anyway.
0: All right, well, thanks so much for stopping by and sharing, and thanks for the great performance, and best of luck with your run. Thank you thanks. so much.
5: It was great to be here. <laughs>
0: The Call Board. All right, first up, the Internet Movie Database is reporting that Hollywood actress Kirsten Dunst is writing her own stage musical. They report that she hopes to take some time off from acting to complete her composition. This would be her theatrical debut as a writer. She stated, quote, I started to write a musical a few years ago, and I'm going to get back into writing it. But I'm not going to say what it's about, though. End quote. Next, a mix of stage and screen stars will populate Julie Taymor's silver screen adaptation of William Shakespeare's The Tempest. Academy Award winner Helen Mirren, according to The Hollywood Reporter, will star in the film as Prospera. A gender-bending take on the role of Prospero, which is usually played by a male. Mirren's co-stars will include Oscar winner Jeremy Irons, as well as Diomand Hinju, Russell Brand, Alfred Molina, Ben Whishaw, and Felicity Jones. Jeffrey Rush is currently in negotiations to join the starry company. The film, according to the industry paper, will quote center around Prospera, her daughter Miranda, and a shipwrecked crew full of Prospera's enemies. End quote. The Miramax film will likely begin shooting in November in Hawaii. And uh in a little bit past the rumor mill, a film version of Broadway's last two Tony Award winning best musicals, Spring Awakening and in the Heights, are likely. At the October 6th Revival, Broadway's next act panel discussion at Carnegie Hall's Zankel Hall, films of both award winning musicals were mentioned. Anna Gasteyer moderated the evening, which featured Spring Awakening composer Duncan Cheek, in the Heights creator star lin Manuel Miranda, legally blonde director choreographer Jerry Mitchell, original. Rent- star Anthony Rapp, and Hairspray film director Adam Shankman. And finally, a host of theater favorites will take part in Broadway for Obama, a fundraising concert that will be held October 20th at Easton State Theater Center for the Arts in Easton, Pennsylvania. The 7.30 p.m. concert is scheduled to boast the talents of Tony Award winner Priscilla Lopez, as well as Titus Burgess, Rodney Hicks, Julie Riber, Brandon Dixon, Sean Taylor Corbett, and Cara Mo- Carla Mosley. Additional performers will be announced shortly. Local high school rising stars will also perform in the evening, which will feature music direction by Beth Falcone. All proceeds will go to the Barack Obama campaign. The State Theater Center for the Arts is located at 53 Northampton Street in Easton, Pennsylvania. Tickets, priced 25 to $100, are available by calling 610-252-3132 or by visiting www.statetheater.org/schedule.
1: Up close. Well, I'm
0: very excited to be sitting in the studio with one of the foremost modern composers of musical theater, uh, very well recognized, Michael John LaCusa, is here, and very modest man. We've had a little chat even before getting started with the interview. How are you doing? I'm
3: fine, thank you, Michael. It's great Uh, to
0: be here today. For some of our younger listeners who, for some reason, may not have known of you, a couple of your notable shows, as you made a big splash in, what, 1994 with Hello Again, and That's right, yeah. oodles and oodles of Lots Drama of Desk stuff, nominations, yeah. and Maria Christie on Broadway with Audra McDonald, and mm-hmm. The Wild Party with Mandy Patinkin, Eartha Kitt, and uh, just, uh. Everybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Tony Collette. Tony Collette, the- right. Yeah. <laughs> was in it, and uh, tons of other shows in the meantime, and you just uh, put out a CD cast recording for Little Fish, which was done in California. That's correct, the Blank Theater Company out there
3: in Los Angeles, terrific uh, theater company that's done a lot of my work out there in the West Coast, premiered a lot of work that has been seen out there, and it's a great relationship. I love working with uh, Daniel Henning, who's the artistic producer, Noel Wiley, who's a uh, uh, the other producer, they founded this wonderful theater company out there, and it's been great uh, to um, have the shows out there. Alice Ripley premiered in this production at the L.A. premiere. Alice Ripley premiered in it. She was unbelievably fabulous, and had a whole great cast out there. It was really lovely, and we were fortunate fortunate enough to have uh, this company uh, recorded for it. <laughs> this recording.
0: It's fa- fantastic right. recording. We're going to hear a couple songs over the course of the interview here. I want to open up with... Uh, uh, i this may be an over asked question for you, I don't know, but I find it most interesting. you're probably one of the most notable well known composers in the theater world who who has had a lot <laughs> of critical success and maybe not as much commercial success as as you maybe would have liked and I'm wondering how does how does how does that play out it, uh, I'm just guessing you're much more recognizable as a name and in the theater community than people probably actually have it's heard of It's work. a
3: choice on, on my part. I mean, I, I, there are uh, commercial choices that I make. I write for Wonder Pets, for instance, and uh, the kid, kids' TV show, uh, which is a wonderful commercial show, and I love working uh, on that series, and it's great fun. But the, I, the subject matter that I choose to do and the theaters that I choose to work in, it's not about commerciality. Uh, if it happens to be commercial, that's great, and, and every, you know that that's a wonderful thing. Um, but the subject matter that it's the stories, the the characters, the the type of thing that I want to do doesn't necessarily lend itself to a commercial theater. And that's uh, it gives me more freedom. It gives me more um, of a chance to um, you know express myself, which is what I think uh, writing in the musical theater should be all about. So. I think if that's an explanation for why I don't have a commercial <laughs> hit, I don't know. I, I don't look for that, let me put it that way. And I don't think any writer, you know, ought to necessarily.
0: In fact, I, I believe you were quoted at one point saying that Maria Christie should have only run for three performances. Oh, I am still holding <laughs> by that one. There, that is a powerhouse of uh, uh,
3: vehicle, and of course, it was written for a powerhouse, Audra McDonald. And um, I was surprised that it, you know, was ran for so long because I was actually very worried about that, uh, not just for Audra, but for everybody in the company what they had to put out there every single night. And it's quite a, uh, a quite a vast. Uh, uh, and a complicated piece of music. And, uh, but we did it at Lincoln Center under the umbrella of Lincoln Center Theater. Andre Bishop, uh, artistic director there, Bernie Gersten, their producer, and Ira Weitzman, who's a, uh, the musical theater producer there. And so it was a very safe environment in that respect. And that, In other words, we didn't have to uh, worry about the commerciality of, of, of it all, whether or not it was you know, supposed to run for 12 months
0: or something that was not uh, part and parcel of, of um, doing that show. So, I want to back up a little bit in your career because one, one thing I find interesting about. I never back up. I don't <laughs> really back up anywhere, please. The, the path you've taken and, and making your career and, and forging such a name is. Uh, Without you know stating any names, I do know that a lot of Broadway composers come from shall we say a silver spoon kind of background where they really. Have...
3: I don't know. I don't know. Have you done like the re- research on that?
0: Yeah. Uh, uh, okay. Well, anecdotal, but it's it's quite high the number of uh, composers I see that really have kind of a. Hmm. You know, at, at least I should say you know composers that are like all of them. Not all, but I would I'd say a really good way a majority.
8: Huh.
0: Really. <laughs> Especially recently. Uh, I'm not going know. back to the Richard Rodgers and those people, but when I look at kind of a new batch of composers that are getting really? a lot of attention. I...
3: I don't really pay attention to that, <laughs> actually, to be honest with you. I mean, I, I come from a working class Italian family, so I know where I come from and, and that it's, you know, always I have to work hard because I, I, you know, I don't have trust funds or anything like that, you know, or a family, to, uh, family money to fall back on. Um, but I think it's hard for anybody, even with people – people <laughs> with trust funds, I, you know, I, we, we're worried today, as a matter of fact, you know, given our – the current state of the economy. Yeah, it's sometimes it okay to be. I think I, I kept, you know, I'm thinking maybe it's okay actually for the first time to be poor at least until they write out this, you know, because I won't know really the difference, you know, of what's happening in, in our economy right now. But uh, um, I, I don't know. I don't know the statistics about that. So I don't know if I could really actually comment on it
0: except for my own personal experience. And that's mainly what I'm, I'm interested in, in finding about it, is kind of how you personally managed to, you know, early on in your career find find time to write and make those connections while having to earn a living in New York. Well I first.
3: loved it. I loved it. I just loved it. I think that that is the first and foremost thing that propels anybody to want to become a writer um, and want to be involved in the theater, in the arts period. You you love it. and. Um, and uh, that's what propelled me uh, into doing it, regardless of the obstacles. Uh, you know, whether or not you were going to be poor and starving or whatever. Um, to me, it was about work, and the work ethic was very important to me. I was very, very fortunate very early on, growing up uh, here in New York, um, to meet, you know, some of the most remarkable people in the theater, and to uh, witness their work ethic, uh, which um, is something that I. Uh, abide by and try to impart to, you know, say my students at NYU and and to every young writer that I, I have uh, the good opportunity to meet. You know, you have to have the work ethic and you have to work really, really hard. Um, so it's not about I mean, it is a matter of, you know, making sure you have a roof over your head and feeding yourself and you know all that, uh, everything, and you can't expect if you're going to go into writing musical theater to have a health insurance <laughs> plan for you. you know, that's just, that's ridiculous. But at the same time, you know it's it is about um, making sure that you're doing what it is that you love, and um, if you can make some money doing it, you, you can keep that roof over your head and you can feed yourself, um, and maybe a few others while you're at it. That's a very very good thing. Then you then you then you've achieved it. I've never met anybody that sort of sat back on their laurels you know no one i respect in the business that i met when i was starting out ever sat back on their laurels or ever sat back on their their wealth or whatever you know from the from their successes it was always about the next show always about the next piece of work the next uh, thing that they could do to stretch themselves and make something better now
0: uh you actually were here in new york for about 13 years or so before you really kind of Took a lot of attention with "Hello" again.
3: Well, uh, actually, it was, it was ten it? years because okay. I came in uh, summer of '79 uh, is when I when I arrived here, and um, so it would have been about I don't know, maybe about thirteen years or so. Maybe I mean I was uh, doing a lot of off off Broadway though before before that, uh, working at the WPA Theater. Um, I'm working with Jeffrey Espin, the brilliant comedian, down at La Mama, and New York Theatre Workshop. So I was working, you know, I was working with the, the minute I came in, writing music um, for uh, in, in, in smaller venues and in the off-off Broadway um, venue, which I still uh, we were just talking earlier how much I love it, and uh, I know the it awards with the, the other night there, which I, th- I think is a wonderful, wonderful thing. Um, that supports off-Broadway off, off Broadway performances and, and writers and uh, my heart still is downtown there it will always be downtown in a lot of respects so um, I was starting right write very very early now as far as um, uh, the recognition factor I think is what you're talking about yeah. there um, that that did come probably around the time of first Lady Suite Hello again although you know I had my name in the paper before then and all that but as far as that concerned it would be 94. so I don't know you do the math on that one. So <laughs> It is about four to 13 years or so. You
0: know. but how intense was that attention you were getting versus before was it I mean because I just know that, I that didn't was pay while much I was attention. In
3: I, honest to God, I didn't pay it much attention because it was just about now, how am I going to feed myself tomorrow? Because, you know <laughs> what I mean, you can get all the attention that you want, but at the same time, you know, it was off-Broadway production, it was in a not-for-profit theater, and uh, not-for-profit theater is really quite exactly that, <laughs> mostly for the writers. It really is not-for-profit for a writer. Um, uh, it, you know, But what it does, uh, when you do have a show and, and, and people notice it and they sit up and they, and they listen to it, what, what it does offer you is, um, if not an open door, at least the window cracks a little bit and you you can go th- through that or at least breathe a new fresh air and try for something new so that was a very very good thing um uh, it was only, only only about the next project though for me so and that's how i sort of always have uh, proceeded with everything
0: all right well before we continue maybe we should uh, listen to one of the songs here that'd be great from, that'd uh, be terrific the little fish that just came out on ghost light wonderful um let's play perfect yeah, is there a story you want to oh, set, it's this, a, it's set this up a, it, or something uh, around
3: this? It's a wonderful character, uh, a, a girl named Kathy, who um, uh, it's, this is on the album sung by a wonderful actress from L.A., Dina Morishita, and she's really, really incredibly beautiful, and she's incredibly perfect. And you look at her, but at the same time, this character who. Um, Dina plays, uh, says, you know, you can look at me and you might think this and you might think that, but the truth of the matter is, I am not perfect. And it's about the anxiety that a lot of uh, uh, young women feel in today's world. All right, let's take a listen.
7: I'm living with a guy I thought I knew. Today he tells me something I don't know. His sister's in a psych ward somewhere upstate New York. I guess she went berserk and stabbed her mother with a fork. So now I'm sort of worried for my life. What if, like his sister, he's insane? Why'd she use a fork and not a knife? Complicated, right? How can I explain? Nothing's ever perfect. It's a cosmic But you'll always find a flaw You'll find the perfect boyfriend At least he seems to be Turns out not to be Nothing's ever perfect Take for example me You dump a lot of weight then gain it back you dump some more and then you starve. The media tells little girls that women should be thin. If you're not that, they call you fat. And you never seem to win. So naturally, you worry what you wear. Naturally, you worry what you eat. If it's not your I've got no secret strength Friends think I'm Wonder Woman Friends Short enough, nothing's ever loose enough, or good enough, or new enough, or hip enough, or thin enough, or sane enough, or the perfect shade of blue. Something simple would be perfect.
0: Now, in your career, you also do a lot of sharing. In fact, you teach at the NYU musical theater grad program as well, right? Yes, very I love it. Yeah. So uh, how, how, how does that work into your, your sense of self and, and, your, and your well-being? Do you really enjoy working with the students? And you well-being? know,
3: I wasn't sure if I thought that—I uh, mean, I was part of the BMI workshop, and, uh, uh, which was a remarkable, remarkable experience for me uh, growing up. Uh, when I was young, younger here in New York. Uh, the people that I got to meet and uh, who took me under their wing was it was just really a remarkable thing um, and what I learned. Um, I didn't think myself I, I could ever be a good teacher. I wasn't sure if I had anything to offer. And also, too, the thought of going to school to learn this thing that I learned on the streets for, you know, what it's worth, uh, or in the libraries or listening to the cast albums or whatever, the thing that you learn, I, I felt I learned naturally about, about things. I didn't know if it could be taught. Um, uh, yet at the same time, I've re- recognized that um, it really is a really, really terrific uh, foundation to um, pass on a little bit of what I learned from some of the masters whom I met and in my life. And it's great to pass on those traditions and, uh, and a very, very healthy thing to do because... Th- as you as you know as you, you cover the Nymph festivals and you cover some of the new musical writers that are out there um, probably more than a lot of other um, uh, you know uh, podcasts do and a lot of other uh, websites do it's it's there's, there's some really great talent out there and a lot of it does I'm not patting myself on the back but I'm, I am you know Shouting a kadoos out, you know, to uh, to, the, to this program at NYU because they are producing really, really talented kids out there. It's really, really so wonderful to to go and see and listen and enjoy and, and see what the babies are doing. It's really, really great to know that there's, you know, people out there that are carrying on a, a certain degree of tradition, but also to expanding the form, being daring, being taking risks, going out there on a limb, and to, with this beautiful form of musical theater that it's just, you know, it's timeless.
0: Well, I know you you definitely are all about taking risks and changing up what you do stylistically, and you've never been afraid to... The CPA to, hates that, so. <laughs> And you've never been afraid to ruffle feathers, either, in no. the community. In fact, uh, I seem to recall reading something that kind of ruffled a few feathers uh, a few years back when you were talking about the new fad of the faux musicals. Oh, the opera
3: news essay. Well, you know, I think I've, <laughs> I've spoken a lot on the subject, and, uh, you know, I think I've addressed it for all it's worth and everything <laughs> like that, you know, I um, I, still kind of, you know, I, I, as I, I mentioned in the Times there, I think it was about a year or so ago in an article, I said, you know, what I didn't want to do was ever um, personally, you know, hurt anybody's feelings. Yeah. To me, that's like not right. And I was very, I feel very bad that, that if anybody's feelings were personally hurt in that, I don't want to Ever do that to anybody? Yet at the same time, you know, I still stand by by what I wrote and what I say, and um, and I feel like actually people, you know, did listen to that and uh, and uh, have a and hopefully took a look at that and said, well, okay, the argument, you know, stands. And it's interesting to see what's, you know, and some of the wonderful stuff that we've recently seen actually is 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 uh, on Broadway. You know, that is energetic and new and and uh, interesting. I think it was my, my I felt that the essay was a call to arms and saying, come on. There's so much originality out there. There's so much talent out there. There's so much uh, brave and new out there. Let's really start embracing this. So if anything, it's supposed to, you know, saying, come on, get on board. And I think with that there's really been some really exciting things that I've, I've heard in the last couple of years uh, since the article came out, which is really wonderful. I'm not saying that, it, yeah. that you know, that the article itself
0: provoked that or anything. But I'm saying that it definitely was a, was part of a call to arms. Well, I do agree. I kind of feel like, and, and there's probably been some good examples where this turned out well, but I, I do kind of agree with you in the sense of especially what kind of strikes me as odd in, in the creative world of musical theater, where supposedly the writers are, are king, is really the, just the super trend of so many of the big shows now are basically auditioned like Hollywood films. The producer gets the property and then it's like, okay, send in your reels and let's figure out you know who's going to write this according to how we want it written. <laughs> well, again, it's, it's, yep. uh, theater is such an individual sport. I mean, there is no
3: cookie-cutter or shouldn't be a cookie-cutter way of doing things. Uh, some people do have cookie-cutter ways of dealing with it, and it doesn't work. And I've seen it over and over again recently. And um, at the same time, every producer is different. Every producer has either some really good expertise in doing it and some not-so-good expertise doing it. So, I mean, that, I, I don't see anything wrong with, I mean, musical theater is just all a grab bag any mm-hmm. old way. I mean, you can take your source material from anything. It can be a movie screenplay. Why not? Uh, a, you know, a, a, a TV
0: show. Why not?
3: It doesn't matter as long
0: as it's good. Well, no, I, and that I don't have a problem with. Musical theater, pretty much just due to the form and the shortened length of time that you have to tell the story, it's always been based on other properties, books, plays. Sure. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's always been a, a form that has thrived on that. I guess my bigger In some issue cases,
3: is, uh, other, other musicals, i.e. Rent. Mm-hmm.
0: You know? My main thing that I see, though, isn't that. I have no problem with the movies being taken. It's the fact that there doesn't seem to be a lot of creative heart behind a lot of these productions coming up because they weren't kind of like instigated by the writers or they weren't like, hey, I think this would be great and we have a great way around it. But more like the producers taken on the property from the beginning and the writers I, feel like work for hire and that they could lose their job or they can't take the. I don't think there's, doing? you
3: know, I think that I've learned is that I, I don't think anybody really Goes into this without a lot of heart, <laughs> um, because first and foremost, it's very painstaking. It's a very, very hard thing to do. So I think that everybody who does put up a show and gets a show up, it could be from the the bottom of the the food chain to the top of the food chain in in terms of a, a production. Um, everybody does do it with their heart and their soul. I I have to believe that as a writer, and uh, as a creator of a theater, I have to believe that that everybody does it with a great deal of heart now maybe there's a cynic, I think you're, you might be referring to, you might have a certain cynicism about it, which I, w- I don't blame you for because there's been shows that you've seen that you just go whoa, you know, there's just nothing going on here, but I don't think that necessarily the actual people involved in making that thing happen um, did not do it with, the, with all the heart that they had within them, I,
0: I've learned that so, uh, have you ever been involved in that experience yourself as a as a composer theater, where you've auditioned for a, a pre kind of packaged thing, sent in your reel? And no, no, I just have chosen not to do it. I, I didn't I didn't sense that there was anything in your catalog. No, I mean because
3: I know what that I know what that's like. I mean, I've been offered uh, some some commercial uh, shows and. Um, there, I'm actually doing a couple, uh, I'm doing one, com- what I think of as a commercial show, but I'm, again, I'm not doing my own score for it all, I'm just I'm acting as a musical supervisor for it all, so, is, a, is the upcoming A Star is Born, which we're casting for right now, and um, which is taking the Ireland score from the Moss Hart screenplay um, starring James Mason and Judy Garland and, and uh, adapting that for the stage, which is a very, very big challenge to do. At the same time, the music I've... I love so, so much, and uh, to be able to work on the RLN score in the capacity of an arranger and as a supervisor of this material, since there is no composer alive, you know, to sort of represent the composer in the room is is, is, is something that I've, you know, I think is kind of interesting to do. I've never really done that before, but it the, the idea of the project really, really fascinates me, and the story is just so brilliant, the Moss Hart screenplay is truly, truly magnificent in so many respects. I don't know if the movie's magnificent. I'm not sure. It's still a great, still a classic movie, but uh, you can't get away from the most beautiful songs, and uh, and also, too, the screenplay itself is really, like I say, qu- quite wonderful, so it's been a great adventure. So that's a commercial project at the same time, you know, so there are things out there, except in that particular case, it's not um, my music, but as I mentioned to you earlier, I think that to to have many, to, to, to be use interdisciplinary and Aspects of, you know, the career. It's very, very important. You know, I write my own books someti- sometimes. Sometimes, as mm-hmm. I collaborate with a book writer, in this particular case, I'm ad- I'm adapting the book, and that's one of the disciplines that I've learned and I'm applying here.
0: Yeah, that's one of the one of the big questions I wanted to ask you is you you are one of the few successful writers out there who does often do book music and lyrics in your show, but yet you also do multitude of different types of collaborations where you go in as one piece of it or, or or you let somebody else do a piece and i'm kind of curious your thoughts and how it changes the dynamic in your mind surrounding the show when you're doing it yourself versus the collaboration well
3: thing. collaboration's key in all all shows i mean you you can't no musical gets made alone you know what i'm saying it's it's uh, the great musicals that we we love and we respect and we cherish, they were all created in tandem with, you know, a whole bunch of people giving everything. It wasn't just, you know, spun out from somebody's head. You know, it didn't turn out that way. So collaboration is key. What um, I've looked for, and sometimes have not found successfully, as a book writer, that uh, that understands the needs of of what it, actually what it means to create a libretto. Um, on the other hand, though, I've recently, you know, um, started working with Sybil Pearson on a uh, adaptation of Giant. Sybil wrote uh, the book to Baby, and uh, is a great playwright and I have fallen madly in love with her and her work, and the collaboration is just one of the most exciting things that I've, I've ever been involved with. So you find that every now and then, if you look hard enough, or actually, Sybil and I teach side by side at NYU. We've been at NYU for about eight years, and I remember turning to her after like you know eight years of working with her, I said, "You want to write a book for something?" And she said, "Yeah, sure, what?" And I said, "Giant." So, and, um, and that's how we kind of met. Of eight years, I was sitting next to this brilliant, brilliant collaborator. And uh, so that was quite ironic, you know. Um, I prefer to collaborate if I could find the right, you know, you have to find the right collaborators to work with. So
0: And Giant is based on, of course, classic movie, right? Uh, based on Edna Ferber's novel. Well, on the novel with the, yeah, mm-hmm. going back to it. Yes, the... yeah. So this this sounds like a more commercial project. Quote, I don't know. I don't know. We're it doing
3: then. it in three acts. Uh, it's in three acts, and it's big mother. <laughs> it's a big mother. Mm-hmm. It's well, a big so
0: one. is Les Mis. <laughs> yeah' even
3: three acts though, and I tell you, it's, yeah, this is uh, this uh, this is an adult musical, mm-hmm. you know, but it is very beautiful. And uh, I'm really excited we open in April down there and at the Signature theater down there in Arlington and uh, really, really psyched by it all. So it's really gonna be a great big cast, big or- orchestra. It's gonna be really quite thrilling. And it's a beautiful, beautiful story about a marriage and tracks itself through twenty five years of Texas history and it's just uh, and what's happened to us as a country in those 25 years as the, uh, the, it, within
0: this story, and it's really quite beautiful, so I'm very excited about it. Um, another thing, you know, as i as I've been looking around, and uh, this probably will tie in maybe to playing the next track from Little Fish in some sort of odd way, it strikes me as so bizarre, and, and, and I'm looking for a composer's take on this, who I'm, I'm guessing you may have dealt with this yourself at times, the 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 fact that with the off-off Broadway productions, the code productions, that equity makes no allowance, period, for the cast being able to record the music. Um, from what I understand in the contract, there's no amount the company you know can pay the actors to do a recording. Right. Economically, no. You just have to wait six ahead. months. And, yeah. And that seems to me, I mean, especially when you're talking about off-off Broadway and so few people see it in the first place, the music is such a representation of the show the ultimate irony kind of is, I guess, if the composer wants to, they can go out and use even equity actors who weren't in the production who are most likely willing to do it for free to try to get to know the composer to do it, but they're unable to use their cast and they're well, to put together something uh, to, sh- to show other people and get the work. Yeah, I know uh, where you're going with this. It, um, the,
3: the problem is, is that um, we have to protect abuse of our actors. You know, you really have to protect your talent from being abused. So it may not be perfect, uh, the system right now, but it is the only system that we have to protect our actors and our performers from being abused. Because trust me, there are so many people out there, composers too, who will abuse their talent. And um, with this contract in place, I don't think it's perfect by any means. I, I go up in arms all the time. I remember when uh, First Lady Suite was revived at the Transport Group uh, down, uh, that's Jack Cummings' uh, wonderful theater group, Transport Group, it won a, a Drama Desk, or, or yeah, last year won a Drama Desk Award for its uh, its contribution to, to Off-Off-Broadway. And they did First Lady Suite, this remarkable revival that they did with a whole bunch of the best women, you know, that I could ever see imagined uh, on stage. And um, they were sold out their entire run. But because of the showcase contract, they couldn't run past a certain point. And they couldn't pay their actors anymore for a certain fee. And they couldn't charge anymore for their their admission. Um, however, people were outside scalping tickets for $50 to $100 to get into this thing. And I just thought this is so unfair that we have scalpers, you know, where if the, if the code the showcase code could have been modified here for this particular incident you know the actors could have gotten a little bit more money the audience could have could have run another week the theater could have benefited from this exposure you know what i mean all those things which are which seem to be un- too inflexible on the part of the union. Yeah. So the unions must continue to, to 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 try to be flexible in the situations that they're given. Same same thing with the musicians' union. Same thing with the the stagehands union. You know, uh, the when they do go on strikes, most often or not recently from uh, with 802 and definitely with the stagehands union. I have to say that they. I don't know if they've come out with more. I don't think so. I think it's you know, and that's a dangerous thing to to put these artists in when the union when a union um, demands too much. It's a very very precarious situation for them. So there's got to be flexibility and there's got to be a, um, a certain give and take on things. Um, uh, the idea of documenting your show for its use to have the piece move on uh, and to go into further development. Well, I mean you 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 fall into sort of the there is a code. Um, that if you help develop a piece and then you're not later used Equity uh, code that says if you're involved in the workshop, mm-hmm. you have to be paid for that work that you've done if you're not cast in the in the production, which is, I think, in one respect, very, very good. On the other hand, it's economically unsolvable for writers because we mm-hmm. have to actually be, we're the ones paying it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and uh, that part of it comes of our pocket, too. So if you're doing a 17-person show, for instance, mm-hmm. and you recast it, because God knows you will recast somewhere down the line. Um, you have to pay those people for the rest of their lives, you know, for whatever. If your production moves on to something, so that's a very, very tricky thing. With where is the money coming from to do that? And uh, when it comes from the writers' prod, po- pockets, I don't. You know, where the writers are getting paid the least in, in the whole situation, that's where I where I raise an eyebrow about it. Um, to get back to the point about documenting your your show. Um, I don't know I don't know where I stand on that because, uh, again, we, we can't abuse the talent. And very often...
0: Well, I guess this is where I go. My it, that question... That happens. I, I, uh, I totally understand we can't abuse the talent. But my thing is at that level, of off-off-Broadway, when people are trying to... I mean, the whole code started I, really not anticipating that there was going to be a whole commercial scene around this, from what I understand, but as a way to enable talent to get out there and showcase their work so that they could get further jobs and i'm i'm not talking i guess so much about you know the you know the the big names who might you know be slumming or you know going with a showcase because they're hoping that you know it'll go further but to me it seems like it's actually more abusive to this to the up and coming actors that aren't allowed to record that aren't allowed to have their voices then heard further that if the you know that that if the composer... you're talking
3: about like a commercially released album either of... or
0: it's not allowed. see
3: for well, it. I tell you if you're still working on your piece and you know you have it yeah. recorded, uh, maybe you should work on it some more before you have it recorded because it's pretty darn costly, you know, uh, to to make a recording. so I don't know if I buy that. Now, as far as making a, a demo, that's something that has to be worked out. I yeah. think demos should be um, negotiated uh, and dealt with. Uh, and right now, you know, I mean, that's something, I, It's again, it's a very foggy, very gray yeah. area about things. And I don't know, you know, Have you really
0: Have you Because I know you've done a lot of smaller off-off-Broadway and, and stuff in development. Has this point ever become an issue for you that you've had to
6: work around?
3: Well, uh, maybe I would have liked to have had some document of, of the off-off-Broadway show. I would think that anybody would want mm-hmm. to have that. You know, I want to, I want to have documents of the readings and workshops, but the hoops that I have to go through for that are incredible, and sometimes I wind up not even being able to record a reading if you know someone doesn't want that to happen. And uh, you know, not that I have done that, I've never done that, I've never done that. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's you know, you do have to take precautions about that because there are equity rules about that, um, and um, like I say, because that is a preventative against abuse and. <clears throat> you know, if you can prove to me that actors won't be abused in the future, then then there's no leg to stand on in their argument. But nine times out of ten, talent gets abused first and <laughs> foremost in any situation. They do. I mean, that's why Equity was created and why we have to support something that even though it might not be the best situation for a writer, it's something that does protect down the way for the actor. And we have to sort of if it's you know it could be fixed absolutely all things but even the guild could be fixed for the Riot Astromeda's Guild everything could be fixed you know but it's something at least it's something and we have to sort of you know play with that and hopefully they'll modify and hopefully they will give a chance uh, for um, things to be documented now I know that that they're talking in Equity um, about which I think is a wonderful, wonderful idea because of the internet now, mm-hmm. as a resource, uh, or as a resource uh, to get the information out about shows. Since advertising in the newspapers is like kind of a silly thing to do. Period. Any day, I don't know if any, I don't, I don't, yeah. I don't know if I buy newspapers on a regular basis anymore either, which is very unusual. My place used to be covered with the newspaper, you know. But I don't even go out; and I get, get it on the internet now. In a lot of respects, uh, advertising works well on the internet now. So there might be concessions about being able to put. Um, a certain amount of video coverage of your show that's in previews or in rehearsals just to get the word out about your show and help advertise the show, which won't cost everybody an arm and a leg, which would be, I think, a very,
0: very important thing to do. See, and that's where I look at it. I mean, as as probably both, I face those issues, all the things. And that benefits the actor. And that's what I'm saying, you know, because if the actor is seen, they're in a 99-seat house, you know, that's maybe going to be, you know, half, three-quarters full. But on the on the, the internet, it becomes they a showcase. Could, yes. They could be seen by, and and that seems to be the entire heart of why they set up the showcase well, code the showcase to begin with,
3: right? Yeah. No, I mean, no, 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 seriously, that's it. They are being, sh- they will be showcased, and that's that to me is very, very important.
0: You know. And I think that's um, the tricky place that the technology has put us into is where is the ab- abuse of the actor. I mean, you, 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 um, the same thing could be viewed both ways. The actors getting more exposure, but they have to do a little bit more work to get it. So, are they getting taken advantage of, or are they? Well, no, they it's getting exposure the...
3: is very important. I mean, how much would you pay for exposure on the internet? I mean, a lot of people pay a lot of money to do that.
0: Stuff, now, like so, so, Stephanie Block's doing an off-off Broadway show. She probably doesn't need that herself, but it seems to me that you know. I don't
3: know. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, like I say, I, I know that they're talking about being able to do that to help, um, you know, off-Broadway off and off-Broadway as well as Broadway advertise their shows in a way that won't uh, cost to produce an arm and a neck and, you know, to, to pay the actors to have their faces on camera for two minutes, you know. When, it, when you, you know, like when you shoot a commercial for television, it's extremely expensive to do because you do have to pay your actor's scale. Um, to be on TV, but hopefully with the internet now, there might be a new rule where we can allow for our shows to be marketed in, in a really, really positive way, much
0: as you would do a newspaper ad. Yeah, so getting back on all this recording thing with the new recording of Little Fish. I don't
3: know how that segues into (laughs) that. uh,
0: (laughs) I thought it might. Well, it took a little while for Little Fish to get recorded after the production. Oh, indeed, yeah. And I was thinking maybe that was part of why, was maybe some of these rules.
3: Well, I tell you, no, 2003 um, 2003 was a very interesting year. Little Fish premiered, and um, that was really a, a big year in New York City in terms of what was happening artistically in town. Uh, that year a lot of the record labels that had been that it had, had an affinity or were inclined to uh, record cast albums uh, off Broadway and Broadway they pulled their plug on a lot of their departments um, that includes RCA that includes Sony that includes the classical music department de- uh, uh, classical music uh, was was fallen left and right the record stores were in starting to become very very uh, it became a very precarious thing, and, and and close to like literally two years ago, the record stores all started closing, in 2005, 2006, and so 2003 really marked a dem- was a demarcation line for how we get our music and how our music is made, and uh, so um, it took a boutique label like uh, Shikaboom, Ghostlight Records to uh, to step in and fill in that void. PS Classics as well to step in and fill a void of getting shows that needed to be documented however it still costs a lot of money so a little fish I, fell on the wayside there I, I it's very costly you know, to
0: record a cast very costly
3: album. very very costly it's it's very very expensive and and I can see why too because if you want a quality album you're gonna you gonna pay for it you know before it wasn't that expensive you know and there were just and there were studios the other thing too is that a lot of studios in New York have began shutting down around 2003 right now i mean they're extremely limited now hit factories gone where we used to be where we recorded uh 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 marie christine uh the and audra's albums were recorded there it was like you know uh, a lot of the studios have shut down where you, where you can do your stuff now um so a lot of things a sea change happened in 2003 economically rents forced a lot of uh, smaller businesses out recording studios out and um, so it was a major change that went on in terms of, like, how we get our music out uh, for our shows. Um, uh, fortunate, fortunately, though, a lot of the—some the, smaller labels have stepped up to the plate and are providing some really, really intelligent uh, economic um, uh, solutions to how to get an album out, Ghostlight, for instance. And um, you still need a lot of money to do it, but at the same time, it's it's, it's smart packaging. It's, you know, very efficient— Way of and they've developed a, a clientele for that now, which I think is really quite remarkable. And I love working with Kurt Deutsch and, and the gang over there. They're really, really smart, and they've done a beautiful job with Little Fish—an exquisite job, as a matter of fact.
0: Now, I'm assuming, were you there the whole time in the studio while this nice. was recording? Yes. How, how do you like that process of the the studio versus the stage? I'm not
3: a studio guy. <laughs> I'm not a studio guy, strangely enough. I mean, I, I like it. I like being in the studio, but um, I, I I prefer editing the editing part much more. Um, mixing I'm not that comfortable with because I, there's so many more talented people than I am to do, do better mixing than I do. I like the editing of it all, but in the recording studio, it's, you know, I'm such a, I you know, love my live performance, but sometimes that doesn't really quite work when you're in the recording studio. So you have to pay very close attention to it and try not to, you know, you want a, that slight bit of difference in terms of like doing something live, what you do, uh, an actor who does something in a particular way live doesn't always translate very well when you get into the studio so you have to find that happy medium of saying to the actor could you do this slightly not so this way maybe just a little bit more that way and it's a lot of negotiation about it so i'm not necessarily the most patient guy either i can't stand the long hours (laughs) you know i used to like it in the
0: days that we could smoke (laughs) now you can't smoke in the studio damn it all right. Well then that leads into probably that leads in really nicely into little fish, which the whole the character is. I'm trying to get you back there, smoking. Michael,
3: so we can move on. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So, um, with the lead character throughout all of Little Fish is uh, is give has given up smoking and is dealing mm-hmm. with that whole issue, um, mm-hmm. which I don't know if that ties into the next song. I, I don't but think it, it does. you should do
3: a you could do the title song, Little Fish. Uh, you should you should do a number by Alice though, Alice Ripley.
0: Okay. You should well, do a number from Alice Ripley. We'll do that one then. What what yeah. what,
3: what, what? Well, should do Simple Creature. That's quite okay. beautiful. It's it's quite a I think it goes right into the next track pretty fast, but. That's beautiful. This is um, when the character of uh, Charlotte um, has quit smoking, and what happens when she quits smoking is that a a lot of truths come to the surface. Her past comes and starts biting her on on a butt, and she uh, has to reconcile the past with her present so that she can have some sort of future. And after a long struggle of not, uh, of dealing with things, trying to go to the why to learn how to swim, and, and then that not working, and then jogging, and then just being chased by ghosts from her past, she does have a revelation about herself and what she is and what she can do to get through her day and what it means. The very, very simple language that she comes up with in, in this number. It's called Simple Creature. All right, let's take a listen.
1: I have no lover I have no pit, I have no schedule, I would forget. But I have clear air, and I can see, this simple creature, that must be me. I have no fortune, I have to I have no diet that I could break but I have good friends who will forgive
7: this simple creature who only wants to live. I only want to be good and get through my Sunday with a mad come of pain. I only want to be good and live through Monday, Tuesday, weekend, summer.
0: So before we wrap up, I, I have a, a twist on a question. I, I, I quite often ask people for you know career advice, you know, um, you know to newer people out there. But I want to take a twist on this because you've had a lot of ups and downs in your careers, and at least from what I've read, you've also gone through your share of you know depression and and you know and excitement through that stuff. And I'm wondering if you have any advice as a creative artist of how to handle those highs and lows. Uh, a good, how you handle the highs and a lows good
3: good, uh, good friendships uh, very very important uh, you know just on a personal level you have, you have to always keep your personal life your personal life and find great joy in it and, uh, and just find great happiness in everything even in the really really bad things that happen um, you can re- I read I read the reviews I read my I read my reviews because I it gives me sometimes it empowers me Um, and And if you read the good ones, you have to read the bad ones. They're all the same. It's all the same. And uh, so but I, instead of now getting angry about it or depressed mm-hmm. about it, I just I take it in. And if I do have something to say about it, I say something about it, um, you know, or I'll write a writer and say, nope, you don't have a right to say that. Boom, boom, boom. Let's have a colloquial about this here. You know, um, you know, it's it, to me, it's you have to really um, be true to the work first and foremost. And it's really what you want to do as a writer that makes you the happiest and gives you the greatest uh, fulfillment. Um, I that's sort of glib in one respect, because I don't think we write to be happy, and I don't mm-hmm. think we write to be fulfilled. We have a serious desire to live, um, just live. And that's what we do as writers. Um, it, it's our it's our way of living. It's our way of breathing, eating, you know, defecating. It's just that's the way that we 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 know how to live. And so if you aren't writing, in a lot of our minds, you aren't living. So what do you do? You write. You write. You write. You write at every opportunity you possibly can. And, and um, if it's if it's not a show, you write a a, a, a story. If it's not that, you write a poem. If it's not that, you write. You 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 live through your writing, and you can't stop doing it, no matter what the. Um, You know, whether or not people say you shouldn't do it or um, or if people say, oh, God, you're the greatest. You know, don't do it for those reasons. Don't do it for that. And if someone wants to pay you some money for it, you go and you take that money for it, (laughs) which makes you kind of happy in some respects, too. But it won't bring you happiness. Totally. And it's really going to be totally about you
0: living through that because that's the only thing you're going to leave behind. It's just that leaving the critics behind. For audience acceptance, does it matter to you whether 10 people, oh, 110,000, a million? The only reason I do
3: musical theater is for an audience. Now, do I expect them to do the same thing that you would see, like if you were going to go and see you know, a musical comedy, and probably if they are coming to come and see Marie Christine? No, I'm not offering that experience, so I'm not looking for my audience to have that experience, and I'm not asking them to have that experience. It's a different thing. And I try to spell it out as clearly as I can, you know, to, to an audience and whether it's uh, in, uh, before they step foot into the theater, you know, that, that, you know, if it's, they're going to come and see, you know, Marie Christine, which is based on Medea, they angle be laughing, you know, at the end of the piece, okay? It's just not going to be happening. But at the same time, I do want them to have their emotional, um, you know, uh, uh, emotions touched if, if possible. And uh, it's going to be a different experience for them. And every time they come and see a show,
0: I'm also curious uh, as a final wrap-up as you know, composer's perception versus others. You've often been described not in a, in a work capacity as a personal person, but as your the actual work you create as being a difficult composer. And I'm kind of curious your because th- you know Sondheim is, I, has been called that himself, and he's like, and I know he has a very different impression of that. And I'm kind of curious how the critics you know, and, and audience members' description of your work as being very challenging and difficult compares with your perception of your work writing.
3: Well, I do have to say, you know, when you're working with um, some of the talent that I've been so lucky to work with, whether it be Audra McDonald or uh, Mandy and Mary Testa, these wonderful, wonderful people that have come into my lives and have made me better, uh, and th- th- their talents are so immense, uh just so immense you want to challenge them so therefore you give them a piece of challenging music and that's not just like actors that's also directors and I have to tell you something too my musicians these remarkable musicians whom I've had the, been blessed to like be my piano players and my music directors Chris Fenwick for instance Deborah Abramson, uh, uh, Alan Johnson these remarkable David Evans remarkable remarkable musicians too that you throw them something and they can do it I go, now we've just set a bar. And, you know, and that tells me something about that. Now, if these guys can do this stuff here, then we've set a bar for um, for what is good and what is really, really challenging stuff. And that's really fun to do because they want that. They, you know, they want mm-hmm. that. They enjoy it. And that's one of the reasons why I provide it because I, I also know, too, that I've got people that will actually be able to cut it. You know, so I'm going to write them. I'm not going to write them a, you know, a four-bar, you know, five one-chord song, because I know these guys can play an awful lot and these women can play an awful lot and do do what they want to do. So they're challenging me to give them a challenge. So as far as it being difficult and stuff, I think it's just a matter of um, time and, you know, things get less difficult to the ear, the more you listen to them. I mean, you know, I remember first hearing some of the atonal music that I first heard when I was a child and kind of going, and then after many listenings and repeated listenings, I got the uh, the understanding cre- crept in. Understanding doesn't have to hit you across the face, you know. Musical theater, though, is immediate. We like immediacy in our musical theater. But at the same time, music doesn't always have to just slap you across the face. You know, music can take a while for it to creep in and... and uh, and
0: you have to learn to live with music much as music has to learn to live with you. Fantastic. I'd like to wrap up and, and, and roll out with uh, a song represented from one of your other works also on Ghost Light Records. Uh, I believe we're going to play the title song from See What I Want to See. Well, that's appropriate. There you go. <laughs> I think this is Idina Menzel, my baby. She's pretty
3: fab. Any story behind this song? Uh, well, it's uh, written from uh, the Kutagawa short stories Our uh, Shaman. And it. It's a, a song a woman sings in a nightclub and sort of it actually became like sort of the the little, this, it's a pastiche number, and uh, but it sort of became the kernel of what uh, the show's about, about what I see might not
0: necessarily be what you see. All right. Well, let's take a listen. And Michael John LaCusa, I thank you thanks thanks so much me, for being so forthcoming. And, it's you know, great to speak on. to
3: you and your audience and good luck with your sight. Okay, thank you.
8: Friday night down on Houston in a spot called Bamboo Jacks everyone was doing the mumbo and drinking golden cadillacs sally was there with her daddy but daddy was in a funk sally met up with and took a shine to a hunk from Salad.
0: Sweet Charity. Dance Break is heading into its eighth year as unquestionably the most prominent showcase for up-and-coming choreographers in the city. And uh, Melinda Atwood had stopped by while she was doing her nymph piece, uh, Wild About Harry. and. I managed to snag her right afterwards to talk a little bit about the Dance Break program, which I've been dying to find out, because I dare say that there's very few people in this city who know as much of what it takes and uh, to become a choreographer, really, <laughs> in this incredibly competitive city, and has done so much to help them out as Melinda Atwood. So, Melinda, how are you doing? I'm
9: good. I'm good. I'm looking forward to Wild About Harry. That's It's fun. It takes Dance Break to, like, another level but um so that's good that's good
0: <laughs> all right so tell us a little bit about dance break i guess why you, why did you started that you founded dance break i started
9: well. it i was working at mtc um this was years ago and uh i just gotten back from living in africa so i was sort of out of the loop so i was an intern at, at mtc with lee johnson and we were developing musicals as mtc does and I said to Lee one day, well, there's all these programs for librettists and composers and, you know, 20-hour readings, but there's nothing for choreographers and the dance part of a musical. And he said, well, why don't you go make one up? And that's probably to get me out of his hair. But anyway, So I went off and I wrote up this little program. It was based on a 20-hour reading. And then I shopped it around New York for years and everybody would say that's a great idea but it's not really our mission statement and I think well make it your mission statement <laughs> anyway the, um, eventually it landed at uh, SSDC stage directors and choreographers um, society of stage directors and choreographers and they had a foundation and so it ended up there in the first couple of years and we redeveloped it and it went through some birth pains you know we had we did it one way the first year and thought, well, that really isn't the best way and blah, blah, blah. But now, once we got it, it's very much like a template and it works. And
0: Why don't you explain what that template the, is? The that. template
9: is we pick out of applicants send in as a starter, which is going on right now, actually, their resumes. And we go through the resumes and it's not a fair way to pick anybody, but you need something to sort of clear through a lot of people. So and. And kids coming out of high school and just out of college, as much as they may be divinely talented and wonderful, they're probably not ready to swim in this particular pond. So you look at resumes, and you try and get a vague idea. And, and we cut on a wide uh, swath. And then they send in reels. And this is tough, because we want five minutes of material. and. In that five minutes, you need to show us, dun, 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 dun. and I list it all out on our webpage and say, Here's what I want to see. And and they submit the reels, and then we have a very big, and it's now gotten to be a very prestigious um, selection committee. Last year, I think if they dropped a bomb on that building, we would have wiped out Broadway. Everybody <laughs> was there. And it's fun because we all sit around and we chat and we look at the reels and we pick six. And then we bring the six in and we talk to them, and here's what's going to happen. They're given $1,000. And a task, and the task is to create two numbers. One can be absolutely anything they want. I encourage them more in these past few years to make sure it's a little more musical theater than just standing on your head out there in Mm -hmm. silence. But you can do that. (laughs) I can't tell you what to do. Do what you want. The other one is a musical theater piece, and it must be done in the context of the original show with singing and live music they have ten dancers, they have eight minutes for the two things, they have 12 hours of rehearsal time ready go. And uh, there's a bit of stress involved (laughs) but they do it and they have beautiful dancers. The New York City dancers are just stunning and they you know do this because it's fun and they get seen as well. And we hold a couple of performances. When we first did it we had like 80 in the audience, and last year we had 700. It's just become this, <laughs> this event. And people have done extremely well.
0: You've had some very notable successes, including a recent Tony winner. Andy <laughs>
9: He's I call them all my children, they're my children. Andy was in the first year, and that was tougher, because we had a, a different format, and I don't think it showcased them as well as we have learned to do. But Andy, and then Casey Nicklaw, who went right on to uh, the Sinatra thing, and then Spam a lot and drowsy, and now you know he's launched. And Andy, you can't talk to for the next three years. Um, Josh Prince walked out of there into Shrek, and so he's now in LA mm-hmm. doing that. And there are two this year that are just teetering on something that's moving into New York. And I think there will be seven shows in the 2009 season, choreographed by dance by choreographers. It's just amazing.
0: It's, yeah, that's phenomenal. It's amazing.
9: So, what
0: advice would you have for You said, you know, the people who may be brilliantly talented but aren't yet ready for the Dance Break program, what would be your recommendations to them career-wise to maybe get to the place where they're ready for a real career here or your program?
9: Well, it sounds terribly pedestrian, but you have to just keep working. The more you do, the more you learn, the more you find your voice. I mean, it really isn't... I mean, everybody has a voice that they speak with. And when they have walk, they have a distinctive walk. And if I imitate your walk or you imitate my walk, they're different. Choreographers actually have that kind of a style. And when they find that, then they can start to, to move in, in a way that is better for them. And they're not, I mean, you can imitate and you can copy and you can you know, do your jazz hands and you know, do all the different yeah. styles. But the more you work and the more you try, and people get to know you. And suddenly it's that one little gig in Florida suddenly they decide to move to the old globe and mm-hmm. then you're on a track so the more you are out there I mean, i've also said to a lot of the um dance break choreographers the broadway theater is really a club and it's like, i think it's like harvard i hope this doesn't insult anybody but it's very hard to get into but once you get into it <laughs> it's, it's, you, you aren't really going to flunk out so Getting yourself into that, because these are expensive shows to do, and it's hard to trust somebody with a $16 million show. But once you sort of get into that club, then you know people, you work with directors. Even in Wild About Harry, these choreographers, I've worked with them. I trust them. I know what they're going to do. And not every step, but I... So to, the more you diversify, too, I mean, it's fun to sort of work in the same place all the time. Um, summer stock and and regional theater but the more you get around the more people are apt to hear your name and say they've seen you and and then of course apply for dance break (laughs) now
0: it seems to me that that accepting when you're actually hired and in a show that it can be a rather expensive thing to be a choreographer on a daily basis i mean in terms of trying to if you want to do something you've got to Rent a fair amount of space. You know, it's not like a musician where you can get your instrument and okay, then a lot of the major expenses out of the way. But there's a lot of ongoing expense, and you need people. You need yes. you need to work with the actual physical humans to try out what you're doing. And I'm just kind of curious if you found some of the, if you've seen some of the interesting ways as that choreographers as artists have been able to afford their craft.
9: Well, I not well. <laughs> you're right. It is expensive, and part of the reason Dance Break was formed, and the SSDC was as interested as they were, is because they were at that point beginning to get complaints from working choreographers that they were being asked, the choreographers were being asked to audition. And uh, their dancers, for instance, wouldn't be covered by insurance, which is key. And we do. We provide insurance for the dancers should anything happen. Um, And it would be a lot of money just to get a little camera at the back of the studio and shoot some, you know, squirrely little handicap thing. You have to you get your dancers usually to do it for nothing, but studio rental space, you know, transferring tape, all that. It is expensive, and it's almost prohibitive. Part of the part of what we do, uh, the the purpose of dance break, is to give young people that. Again, it's gotten kind of to be a bit more of a, a big deal now than it was eight years ago, uh, for people to to have their stuff seen. But we say to people, and 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 this is one of the joys of computer life now get a handycam you can do a lot on a computer and we as the as the selection committee for instance we can see beyond you know that you didn't maybe edit it brilliantly and there are ballet bars in the background but to see the work on tape also, the rules, the AEA rules about...
0: I was just going to say, gotta, a, a little bird told me that, that her change. biggest frustration was that all of her professional work, she can't put on her reel.
9: Correct. Well, I think I'm not...
0: She wasn't allowed to tape it, even for a de- industry insider demo purpose. I know.
9: And, and part of what the SSDC is, is working on, they got some concession last year, and I, don't, I will say this, but I'm not sure if I'm completely accurate, that they can shoot it, but then the SSDC has to... <laughs> has to hang on to it. But we have been lobbying for them being able to have that, and whether it's, a, it's something that's an offshoot of dance break, that we, we could hold reels, or, but it is almost impossible. It's like saying to a writer, well, you can't submit a writing s- sample. They have to have those reels. That's all they've got. And if their best work they cannot see, or it cannot be seen, mm-hmm. that's, it's difficult. It's a problem. And I, I don't know the answer. I, I don't get into those mm-hmm. debating rooms. But um, they don't want me in there. But, uh, <laughs> so it is a problem. It is a problem.
0: Yeah, I, like I said, just in general, I think there's a lot of things in this economy that, you know, a, I, I've, I've talked about many things with, you know, you know, actors not being able to showcase themselves on, on YouTube mm-hmm. or smaller shows with, you know, with incredibly small budgets not being able to take advantage of a lot of the inexpensive ways... That have arisen to market themselves, and it seems that choreographers are are also <laughs> falling victim to that. So hopefully they it's do hard. take a, a, a another hard look at all these different ways that
9: I would hope. And again, Dance Break does that. It, it because it's gotten kind of spiffy now with the stage and the whole business. It but it presents something that a chore, that a director specifically or a producer can see what it would look like. And it's not that all these people aren't wildly visionary. But it's hard you know, to say, what can this person do? What will this actually look like? And because of the way the two numbers are presented, I'm told by people that they can see that. They can see an original voice in case they want to you know, take a chance on a, a new, uh, do, doing a new piece. Or here's what you would do if you were doing Oklahoma and oh, I can see that, I understand that and the two seem to work very well but it's, I mean it's only six a year, six choreographers, people say you should do it more than once a year, I don't i don't know about that but, so you know, out of but, you know, this again to get to the point where you're ready for that is, is also, and we've skimmed a lot of the cream off, <laughs> off the top right now, we've got some really talented people who've been showcased there and um I mean, it's, it's, it's fun to work with, with uh, Wild About Herod because, I said, I, I kind of know where they're going to go, and it's, it's uh, I play puppeteer here.
0: So you said the, the selection process for next year is going on right now. Is there a deadline for people to get their resume to you? I or? think
9: it's September 28th is the resume deadline. Okay,
0: so that will have passed by the time we yes, probably. aired this deadline. probably,
9: probably. Um, and then we will go through the, the process of that how that will fill out. I think we're looking at uh, March again. But it's usually about the same time of year. It's usually about you know, just after September. Life has come back from the...
0: But it's a, as in the reel and stuff, there's a lot of stuff that people do need to get together. So they should be maybe looking yes. at your website. And the go, reel is hard. And, and, and looking ahead to see what they yes. need to... And
9: it's very, it's very specific. And from the time you are told you need to send in a reel, you only have six weeks to do it. Because, you know, we start in March, and I back that up as to every little... So. And is there
0: information ahead of time right now that people yes. can see what you're looking yes. for on the reel?
9: On my website, my website, dancebreak.org or .com, whatever. You, t- you Google <laughs> dancebreak and it will pop up. And on there, there's a tab that says, here's what we want to submit. I may have the date on it from last year because I haven't changed it because there's no need to. Mm. And it's very specific. I think that I have... It's very specific. Mm. People say, oh, I didn't read it. You think, well, you should have read it. You should (laughs) read it. Because that five minutes is key. And those people in the room and, again, this is... All the top people on Broadway are looking for specific things. And to give me a five-minute sizzle reel, for instance, is that's not going to help. I mean, we want to see you tell a story, we want to say da 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 but it's clear. And if you're not clear, call me up. Send me an email. I'll discuss it with you.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, Melinda Atwood, I thank you so much for thank taking you. a little extra time to talk about your program. I've been dying to, to get something about this on the show and... Luck have (laughs) it. There you go. I I didn't have to do a lot of calls.
9: (laughs) thank, Thank you, Michael. It's my favorite topic of conversation.
0: All right. Well, best of luck with everything you've got going on. And thanks so much for coming in. Thanks. Peter Mills and Cara Reichel's musical Illyria is going to be presented again at the Prospect Theatre Company. We just had Peter and Cara on talking about the 10th anniversary concert they had during Nymph. And if you'd like to hear even more from the show, they are in episode three, which is still up uh, from two years ago at the New York Musical Theatre Festival when they presented a concert reading of Illyria. And you can hear two more songs as well as find out a lot more about the show there. But just to kind of give them a little bit of kudos, for their new performance, which is set to run October 18th through November 16th at the Hudson Guild Theatre. We're going to play a track from the Shakespeare Theatre Company of New Jersey's cast recording of Illyria, and this is Malvolio's Tango. My lady
10: calls
7: Malvolio, is that you?
10: Does my lady blush to see me yellow in my leg? After she was purple in her prose Does the blood not rush To bring a crimson to her cheek Does she feel a tingle in her toes As I might, were the straps not so tight What strange new colours are these That passion dares to paint Are you feeling faint? Well, never fear. For here I am, ready to be commanded. Privy to certain preferences you cunningly conveyed. Clearly, ma'am, all is to be commended. As you can see, orders will be obeyed.
7: What's gotten into you, Malvolio? Why do you behave with this ridiculous boldness? Be
10: not afraid. That's what someone once told me. I'm not afraid. But I still may need someone to hold me. Yesterday, the trusted servant under your control. Worthy not to touch my lady's glove. All at once I'm thrust into a more exalted role. Lifted up to serve you from above or beside. Or perhaps from astride. What strange new poses are these that soon we two may strike? Use me as you like, I'm still your slave. And if I should misbehave
8: I think perhaps you ought to go to bed Malvolio to
10: bed aye madam here I am ready to do your bidding happy to have your pillows fluffed your linens freshly laid dear my lamb I will arrange your bedding and will be obeyed. Mariah, go fetch Sir Toby
8: and have him look to this fellow.
10: Have Sir Toby look to this fellow, she said. Not this man or this steward, but fellow. <laughs> to some Think of it. All it requires is fearlessness to see a fortune made. Feet grow numb. Bravely, I think not of it. When I retire, my toes may require some aid. But lucky for me, orders will be obeyed.
0: Again, you can catch Illyria at the Hudson Guild Theater October 18th through November 16th in New York. If you want to find out more information or how to get tickets, you can visit www.prospecttheater.org.
11: On the Positive Side. Hey, this is Marty Cooper once again, and I'm on the positive side. As difficult as it might be in these uh, harrowing times, uh, financial times, I'm glad to be back. I hope you guys are glad to have me. In any case, I I was looking at the box office takes this week. Somehow, with as little money as people have, they'll find their way to Jersey Boys and, and Wicked. And this week... Mr. Elliot has come to town, and I believe they're filling that theater up. I think they did ninety three percent this week i'm rooting big time for this show because as uh, you might have heard before i've seen it twice already over over in london i'm looking forward I'm going to the beginning of november I'm looking forward to seeing the changes that he made to uh, to suit the American audience, I really didn't think he, they needed to make any changes because uh, the movie actually uh, was not how America thinks, you know, and it's still caught on here. I own the DVD, and, and every time I put it on, if I put it on at, at 12 midnight, I'm up till t- uh, t- 2.30 in the morning just watching this movie, even though I know the whole story. So as I say, I'm, I'm rooting for it. I know some people in the cast, and I'm rooting for them. And uh, I'm still on the uh, t- *Tale of Two Cities* w- war path. Uh, I've read all these all these rotten notes and all that chat and and everything like that. And uh, I, I must say, I was a bit remiss. Uh, a couple of weeks ago in in talking about the show. Uh, I was at opening night, and I was a bit remiss because all I mentioned was James Barber. Natalie Toro is absolutely great. Greg Edelman is great. Aaron Lazar is fantastic. They've got a great cast, and I really think it deserves to make it. I hope that all those people that loved Les Miserables and uh, all those big pop musicals of the... uh, of the 90s will make their way over to this and see it. Hopefully there'll be enough money around for us to buy tickets. I was just watching the news and it wasn't good. Uh, so the market is once again down to, to today, a big figure. Uh, but hopefully we'll get through this. But in any case, uh, looking forward to a couple of things this year. The big one I think is is the revival of West Side Story. Arthur Lorenz decided to, to make some of it b- bilingual. I don't think it has to be translated to most English-speaking people because uh, because we know the show backwards and forwards. Anyone who goes to the theater does anyway. Uh, I think it'll be interesting to see. I don't know if he's cast anyone. I think he's. I, I think I think Matt Cavanaugh is going to be Tony. I think that'll be great. He's finally made his way to a starring role on Broadway after Urban Cowboy, and uh, I noticed this week's take on Thirteen. Uh, wasn't too good. I hope that catches on with the Jason Robert Brown fans and maybe the high school musical fans. I've heard some of the music. It really doesn't come up to his standards, really. I mean, he's written a lot better, but hopefully that'll be a success. As you know, I I root for just about anything. Then, of course, there's a big green musical opening up, Shrek, uh, I've been a fan of Brian Darcy James for a long time. He's done a lot of great stuff in the theater. Another musical that flopped that he was in, The Sweet Smell of Success, which I thought should have been more successful. But in any case, I've heard the song that they're they're selling online, and that has some promise. Uh, I like just about everything Janine Tesori writes. Uh, So I'm hoping that'll be a hit. 9 to 5, of course, will be in next spring. The buzz on that isn't great so far. Let's see what happens when it makes it here. I just hope it holds up. So uh, in these hard times, I hope people still find the need to go to Broadway and and see shows, even if it's two less shows than you would normally see. Uh, I know I'm cutting down this year. Uh, I can't afford those $135 prices. In any case, actually, a couple of weeks ago, I had a little argument uh, with Mr. Gilbo here because they said, on the matter of title of show, why are they charging $111? And he said they charge the same amount for every movie, no matter what it is. But we're talking $12 there, and the studios don't make any money on that $12 ticket. They make money on the $10 tubs of popcorn you buy. Uh, That's why most of the... Complex theaters, uh, most of the uh, multiple theaters, don't mind if you go from one theater to the other because they just know you'll be, you'll be stuffing your face with that expensive candy and popcorn. That's where I differ on that. I think, I think if a show costs much less than, than the usual Broadway production, they should charge less, and I think they'd find more of an audience. Well, in any case, uh, if you have any opinions on what I've just talked about, you can email me at BroadwayMarty at AOL.com. And uh, until next time, this is Marty Cooper saying, stay on the positive side.
0: Trade secrets. All right. A little while back, we had set designer Michael Yergin on during our Tony nomination special. Uh. I still don't know if he actually won or not because we're just continuing chatting right now. But great, <laughs> we had a lot to talk about, and uh, so here we are again. Michael Juergen, how you doing? I'm fine. How are you, Michael? Good. Uh, kind of specifically, what I wanted to talk about, you know, here uh, for all the people that are listening and, and the inspiring people is kind of your as an educator, you work in, and teach at Yale. That's right, Yale School, School of Drama, of drama. And besides all your extensive knowledge on, you know, New York theater and set design and stuff, I, I figured you might have a few nuggets of wisdom for people who are aspiring
6: uh, for, you know, set design tech careers. Well, I New hope uh, I hope it's inspiring. It's uh, – I think the toughest thing that happens is once you get out of grad school or once you come into New York and you're looking for work because you've been bitten by the theater bug and you can't do anything else in life but that uh, – is is what's the first step what happens how do you get the first job and all of us are dependent most of all on the director because it's the it's not agents that get you the jobs agents can introduce you to people or put your name up for a show but if you haven't done anything and you've just got your folio you've really got to connect up with a a director And usually, what happens in grad school, whether it's Yale or or any place else, is that you start working with people that you sort of click with. That you begin to develop a, a vocabulary, a visual vocabulary, a way of working, whether it's bringing costumes into the rehearsal hall and just being part of a collaborative process with the actors and the director, if you're a costume designer or. You know, uh, just finding a way of working with space that clicks with a director whose understanding of it is, is, is the same or the same sensibility as yours. So usually those first jobs come from some association with a director. A lot of designers will actually send around a, port, uh, a, a portfolio or photographs of a portfolio. We found that online portfolios now are incredibly helpful and valuable because You don't have to make an appointment to go see somebody. You know, they can look at your work. They don't have to be nice. They don't have to say things about it. They can react to it in their own way, and they can contact you if they want to. But really, it's that first step with a director. And many of these directors are sort of in the same level of experience or the same level of work that you're in. Um, They may be doing, you know, off, 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 off Broadway in a garage, and sometimes it's those painful experiences where you're literally schlepping props around in a taxi cab or even on a bus, I've heard, you know, that, that you, you've gone through something. You've gone through a kind of a trial by fire and you've created something that is exciting to someone, a producer or other people who encourage you to do something else. So it builds. It's like a it's like a tree that you start with a trunk, and you work with one director, and another director sees it and says, "Oh, well, I like the work of that designer," or, and you you sort of bounce around. So that's kind of the first step. That's the hardest part. It's getting that first job. Now I think, especially
0: in New York, I think a lot of those first steps are like you know showcase that's you know, exactly designs right. or festival designs where. Yeah you know, quite frankly, I don't necessarily usually see a lot of inspired, you know, set designs. Right. You know, for practical reasons, a lot of times. Right, right. And how useful are those jo- are those jobs they're, they're in use- the scheme
6: of thing when yeah. it may not actually show what you can do, It's you know? Well, in a funny way, uh, what it does is it gives you the connection. It gives you, it, it makes your work visible. It makes your name visible. And really, a good designer and a sensible designer, I think, will almost strip down and try not to show off. And sometimes those are the most exciting, when it's just a almost an empty space that's treated in some way with one chair or one lamp, it almost says more about the show and the feeling of the show than a stage full of a realistic room, you know, with curtains on the walls yeah. and guitars and lamps and chairs and sofas, and it, it somehow puts the focus on the actors and on on the work of the director with the actors and sometimes those designs actually get more attention than you know the stage full of stuff and 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 it shows that you as a designer care more about the actors and about the show itself and can get inside the play rather than one who just tries to show off and create a stage full of pretty scenery now like Logistics-wise,
0: of you know, again, like we talked in our earlier interview about you know the big Broadway things right. of, how, of moving stuff around and, right. and designing. What kind of are the situations that you know set designers are going to be working in, doing sets for like you know the showcase kind of code productions, and do you have any? Yeah, or it's, any knowledge of how to best maybe creatively navigate
6: that. Well, there's no. It, it's totally unpredictable, but it's sort of the beg, borrow, and steal school of uh, design, where you, uh, you 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 literally find someone who has a little shop. It may be in the basement of a you know of a building. It may be you know I think Playwrights Horizons has a little shop that they that they have, and sometimes they'll build things for friends of designers, or friends of designers, or friends of directors, or, of directors or whoever. And uh, you just beg, borrow, and scrounge. I remember uh, uh, Jim Simpson, who is a wonderful director, and he was talking about when he first got out of Yale and he moved in with a bunch of theater and they were starting their own theater. And he swears this is true, but somehow they they couldn't afford electricity. So they dug, they were in a basement and they dug through to the street and tapped in somehow to the power line, the master power (laughs) line. And ran the theater for like a month before anybody knew about it, and it, it's it's all those kinds of stories, and it's uh, it's great. In a, in a way, it's it's you're you're so amazed when you think back that you got a show on that way, and in a way, it's 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 as I say, it's it's paying your dues, but also building up a, just a a level of understanding of how a show is put on and what that what that what you need to get a sh- to, to to make the 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 magic happened between actors and and an audience in a room and how little sometimes you need but it's the logistics that you borrow from the public you borrow the the public theater is fantastic they have a big stock of props there's several prop houses around that uh that you can borrow from or you know lincoln center i think loans out some things and they're mainly the nonprofits and they're very they're very helpful in that in that way and Playwrights Horizons actually has has wonderful people there to support the work. Wonderful prop people, wonderful construction, wonderful design. But it's those off, off, off-Broadways that where, where the real fun happens. <laughs> How important is what school you go to? I think that the most important part of it sometimes is the connections that you make. And, you know, everyone says, oh, there's a Yale mafia. And all. I, I don't believe that. I think that you know, you're as good as you are. And uh, people see your work. And it's the, the the good thing about something, a place like Yale, is that there's, there, it's a very production oriented program. So you're constantly designing, you're constantly working with your peers, with the directors, with the administrators and all of that. So when you do get out, everybody sort of knows each other on that same level ex- of experience. So if one person gets a job, and they, they remember, oh, well, I worked with this student designer when we were at Yale together, it's a head start in just getting the first job. But I think the same thing happens at Carnegie. Uh, you know, the, uh, my mentor and teacher was Ming-Cho Lee, who still teaches at Yale. And uh, he, every year, puts together what he calls his clam bake, and uh, it's basically like a job fair. It's basically where he gets students graduating from all the universities, all the professional training programs across the country. They're allowed to bring four or five students. And this year we did it up at, uh, up at Lincoln Center. And they set up their work and he invites as many directors and designers who are working in the field to come look at all of this work. And it's a tremendous stepping stone for them because not only do they sort of get a critique of their work, but their work is made visible for people who are looking for assistance. You know, If they wanna to come to New York and they wanna assist, then their, their work is out there for people to see. They can see their model making skills and all of that. But also he has directors from Harold Prince and just as many directors as he can find who take a look at these people's work and a lot of jobs come out of that. So that's a great stepping stone as well. And that's more you know, related to the schools. Now, how would people find out about this clam bake? To I the... think next year is actually going to be the last one. It's gotten so enormous and such a huge expense that I'm not. I think that uh, it'll be the last one. But it, you you have to find out about it through your school. If you're in a if you're in a school that's participating, uh, they usually know about it, and the and the word gets out. But that's sort of the the best way. All right. Any other last
0: minute The nuggets of wisdom? Nuggets to... of
6: wisdom. Oh, just persevere. If you really love you, you know, you, you don't go into it for the money. You're going into it because you love the theater and you, you it's like a, a disease that you can't cure yourself of. And you have to be designing you. I, I grew up. Uh, the first things that I saw were opera. I saw a lot of opera, and I couldn't wait to get home and make models and shoeboxes of it. It was just – it's something that I think is in your blood. And uh, if you—if you if you don't have the perseverance to keep at it, even with the frustrations or whatever – I always felt like as long as I was designing, I didn't care where I was designing. I didn't care if I was in somebody's garage or at Lincoln Center. Granted, at Lincoln Center, it's a little more fulfilling, but you do. I mean, as you go through your career, you're just glad to be working and glad to be part of this, this amazing world of the theater. So perseverance is the number one quality. That would be my word of wisdom. All right. Well, Michael going I thank you so much for coming down and, Great, and chatting and so much of the stuff we could probably go on <laughs>
11: okay. a lot
0: longer, I'm sure. So maybe we'll have you back sometime when you're Great. nominated for
6: your third Tony. Oh, don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. okay. Thank you, Michael.
0: Top of the Trades. Well, two-time Tony winner Matthew Broderick, most recently on Broadway in the revival of Neil Simon's The Odd Couple, will return to The Great White Way in 2009 in the Roundabout Theatre Company's revival of The Philanthropist. Broderick will play college professor Philip in the revival of Christopher Hampton's comedy. No other casting has been announced. The production will begin previews April 10, 2009 at the American Airlines Theatre with an official opening scheduled for April 26, 2009. David Grindley will direct. Paper Mill Playhouse just announced Bailey Hanks of Broadway's Legally Blonde will star as Sharpay in Paper Mill's upcoming production of Disney's High School Musical. The rest of the cast will be announced later this week. Bailey Hanks is the winner of the MTV reality series Legally Blonde the Musical, The Search for Elle Woods. Ms. Hanks succeeded Tony Award nominee Laura Bell Bundy in the role of Elle Woods on Broadway in July. Uh, given the extreme... Obvious commercial scream that this is for Paper Mill Playhouse. I hope this is helping them get out of the problems they were in about a year or so ago. We'll see. Tony Award winner Liza Minnelli, that's Liza with a Z, is in talks to return to Broadway in a concert show that may play at the Palace in late 2008. Minnelli's last Broadway bow was at the Palace in a tribute to work by her director father, Vincente Minnelli. In a show titled Minnelli on Minnelli. It played a month starting in late 1999. If the deal is made, the limited engagement concert is expected to be a tribute to Minnelli's late godmother, the actress and vocal coach Kay Thompson, who coached Minnelli's mother, Judy Garland. News of the plan first broke when a Rhode Island venue for a November Manelli concert booking indicated that the concert was bound for the palace. She'll sing in concert in Italy in October and early November before playing an engagement November 19th to the 23rd at the Stadium Theatre Performing Arts Centre in Woonsocket, Rhode Island. A palace run would have to happen prior to the February 23rd, 2009 launch of the new revival of West Side Story there. Legally Blonde ended, ends its run at the palace October 19th. Curtain Call. Well, there have been so many closing announcements this past uh, week or two. It's uh, kind of incredible. Um, I haven't heard any word if title of show got saved or not, but if not, it was scheduled to close on October 12th. As just mentioned, uh, Legally Blonde ends its run October 19th. Hairspray just announced its closing in January, although with Harvey Firestein coming back to reprise his role for a month. Uh, Hopefully, you know, the economy doesn't bring around too many more of these. um, Or else there definitely will be plenty of empty theaters for new shows to come into. All right. Well, that's it for this episode, Volume 220. If you'd like to find out more information on anything we talked about, you can just go to our show notes at broadwaybullet.com and look for Volume 220. We'll be back. So we're doing the second and fourth Thursday of every month again, back to our regular schedule. So you can be on the lookout for us in another two weeks. And until then, thanks for hopping on board the Broadway Bullet. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo.
11: The
2: Perhaps he my name and I'm in the can. Actually the barfay thing comes from my whole life. People
0: just throwing vulture, So it didn't take much Unpackage uh, yeah. those things with the audience and explore them a little bit. So a little more about our brand new theater and business arts major. I know what most theater programs are like, and I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theater majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere, but most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc. to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that to strategically plan for your career to grow.